In the last episode, we talked about keeping a changelog. Now, we're going to talk about how to keep a changelog with multiple contributors and not have a whole bunch of merge problems with this one file, the changelog. In this episode, I talk with Ned Batchelder about a tool called Scriv. And in the next episode, I'll talk with Hinnick about Town Crier. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun, a refreshingly different domain name registrar with over 500 domain extensions available. Porkbun offers everything from .com and .net to .app, .tech, and .dev. Every Porkbun domain comes with lots of freebies like SSL certificates, who is privacy, URL forwarding, and hosting trials, all backed by five-year support, 365 days a year. For tech folks, it gets even more exciting. They've even launched a new AI-generated search tool using ChatGPT that is leading the change in how people search for domain names. To celebrate the fifth anniversary of .app, Porkbun is offering a .app or .dev domain name for free to Testnicode listeners. To get your .app or .dev domain name for free, visit porkbun.com slash testnicode or click the link in the show notes. Thank you, Porkbun, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Test and Code. I've I've got a project that I've um, a couple projects that that I'm having like growing pains with the the release notes and I guess the yes. change log really yes and so I was looking into how to how to deal with it. There's like a whole bunch of ways to deal with it. Yeah, so here we are. Here we are. Uh, well, so let's jump into Scrib. One of the options to deal with change logs is Scrib. Yep. And it's something you created. Yep. By the way, you started by saying a tool to manage releases. This only does change logs and release notes. So for instance, it's not going to pick your next version number for you or update your version number, things like that. Some tools do that stuff. This I did not take that on. Well, it's based on this idea that when you make a commit, when you, when you or let's say a pull request, you're gonna change some aspect of your code, that that is the moment when you should also write the change log entry or the release note, however you wanna look at it. They're the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but if you just have a big file at the root of your repo called you know changelog.md or something, then when you make your pull request and you put your change log entry at the top of it, you're gonna conflict with someone else who's also making a feature at the same time and putting their changelog entry at the top of changelog.md. Yeah. And those merge conflicts are a problem and a headache. Um, so this, this tool works the way a number of other tools do, which is when you make your commit, you also write a, a small file that contains just the fragment of the changelog for the change you're making. And that fragment goes into a directory and okay. then later and when it's merged that file will get merged into the main branch and when you make a release you will look at all of those fragments in that directory and combine them to make the change log that should go with that release okay that's the idea yeah and and, and it, so I, I had experience with a large project with many developers years ago where we just had a big change log file at the top of the repo and they were always complaining about merge conflicts and I changed the instructions to be 
don't put your entry at the very top of the file. Just put it near the top of the file in the hope of avoiding merge conflicts. <laughs> and the engineers would come to me and say, what do you mean near the top? Like the engineers couldn't deal with something as vague as near the top of the file. They wanted to know exactly where to put it. And so that didn't work. Well, and I guess this might actually go towards like problems with merge tools. Um, I could. Because Although, I mean, to be fair to the merge tools, if if you and I both put a paragraph in exactly the same point in the file, it's the merge tool is going to rightly say you both tried to change the same line in the file in different ways. Now yeah. you could maybe have a merge tool that is clever. You know, you can direct it that for this file you just want to take both changes. Um, but there's other aspects too. So for instance, if if I add a feature and then add a feature and then fix a problem and then deprecate something and then add a feature. I don't want them to appear in chronological order in my change log. I want all of the added features at the top yeah. and then I want the fixes and then I want the deprecations, right? So there's a categorization of the entries that should happen that, that isn't based on strict chronology and a merge tool is never going to get that right. Okay. So what's the so to so the workflow is if I it, when I make a change for some reason I uh, so when do I add the little blurb the little extra thing so it should go into your pull request let's say you're doing a pull request workflow um, right where so every change you make to the project is going to go into a pull request to be reviewed by someone one of the files in your pull request would be the changelog fragment okay um, in in Scriv terms you would use the Scriv create command. And it would make a new fragment file in your changelog.d directory or whatever it's called. That file would be added as to your git commit and it would be part of your commit. It would be part of your pull request. It would get reviewed as part of your pull request um, and okay. become part of the merge to main when the pull request was merged. Okay. And so uh, one of the other things I was looking at was Town Crier and it does a similar yep. thing, right? Yep, it does. It's very similar. Okay. Um, the big difference between Town Crier and Scriv is that Town Crier is extremely opinionated. It has a very quirky style of collecting the fragments. So for instance, I think it is that the file extension of the text file indicates whether it's an add or a change or a fix, which okay. just seems strange that the file extension should be what the format of the content is, not you know whether it's a fix or a <laughs> change. Yeah, see, one of the things I was experimenting with with Scriv was being extremely flexible and configurable. And, and there were two reasons for that. One, I started Scriv about two and a half years ago when Black was in its ascendancy, and it was famous for having no options. It's extremely opinionated. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll try the opposite. Let's have all the options and no opinions. Um, but the other thing is that I was hoping, and this hasn't worked out, I was hoping that Scriv would be adopted by my work project, which is a large open source project called OpenEdX. I was hoping that it would be adopted there and used for all of its repos. And I already knew that there were RST people and Markdown people and NPM versus Python and lots of repos there where there wasn't gonna be a single culture that could use one quirky tool. It had to be a flexible, configurable tool. And so that's that's where I, where I went with Scriv in terms of its design. Okay. Well, that's cool. I'm I'm happy about the markdown bit. Yep. Um so how do I tell if it's not an extension part? How do I tell it if it's a bug fix or a feature or something? That's a great question. So so 
the structure of a fragment is that there is a header which is got a category in it so it's you know it says fixed and then the underlines if you're in rst or, or a hash mark fixed if you're in markdown okay um, and then the content and scriv understands enough about the structure of both markdown and rst that it can look at that fragment and see that it is a fix or an add and then when it collects them together to create the change log during a release it will put the category pieces together and you know the same categories go together um and another advantage, by the way, of it being um, understanding the markdown is that you can actually manage a markdown, a changelog file. You might have a changelog.md. I could make a pull request and write a fragment.rst, and you could make a fragment.md. And then when we collect them, it'll actually get all transmogrified into markdown because the changelog file is a markdown. So it's trying to be very uh, structured about the content in a way that lets it be a bit agnostic about what comes in, okay. what goes out, those sorts of things. So, okay, so during a merge request, I do a um, scriv, I already forgot it, scriv, scriv create. create. Scriv create. create a fragment. Okay, and then um, and then these get populated in a changelog.d directory. Then. Yep. And, yep. Then, and then at some point, I've got a whole bunch of changes on main, yep. and I say, let's do a release. Right, and so part of your release process will be Scriv Collect, okay. which will combine all the fragments. It'll delete the fragments from Git. It'll add the changes to the change logs to Git, and now you've got a combined change log file that could be checked in as part of your, you know, the the final two or three commits of your release process. Okay. And then the the actual versioning, is it get involved with that at all, or? No, so Scriv doesn't have an opinions about the versions. It doesn't update your version number. It doesn't go and edit your, you know, dunder init.py or whatever where your version number is. Okay. Um, it understands enough. You can tell it, you know, here's where you will find my version number so that you can include it in the header of the change log. Okay. Um, and there's a third command um, for, for Scriv called GitHub release. So I've always maintained my own. Uh, changelog files, and then because I write Python code, I release them on PyPI. Um, but GitHub has these releases, and people seem to want GitHub releases for some reason. I'm not sure why. It's exactly duplicative of information that's elsewhere. Um, okay. I don't know. Does anyone actually download like the .targzs or .zips from the GitHub release page in order to do a thing with software if they've got npm or pypi i don't know real package management i don't know but anyway people seem to want github releases and so um scriv github release will read your changelog file parse it and create a github release with the same information so it's duplicated information but it, at least it's automatically duplicated rather than having to uh, edit a github release in some way okay yeah. Well, so like one of the thing, the other ones uh, uh, that I've looked at is what is it? The release drafter. Okay. Which which is definitely part. It's like embedded in the GitHub world. Yeah. So, um, and does and so that's that in that tool you do, it doesn't even save a release. You can, but it doesn't save a a, a change log to your repo. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I have opinions about that. I, GitHub is great, but all of the information about your project should be in files in your Git repo. The idea that you've got a changelog and it's not a file that I can read on disk when I clone your repo 
just seems really strange to me. That is incredibly important information about the history of your project. Why wouldn't yeah. you want it in a file in your project? Yeah, it also allows you to grab main and none of the other, none of the rest of the history if you just wanted to shallow uh, clone and still get information about it. So. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, um, I, I was taught long ago by a release manager from Debian that the source distribution of your project should be all of the files needed to create and continue to maintain that project in the event of a nuclear disaster. <laughs> and, and nothing, if there's anything that you need that isn't in the, that source distribution, then you have left something behind that's important. And okay. the, the idea that somehow GitHub releases is the, the source of truth for the history of your project just seems really strange to me. The other thing that seems really strange to me are these tools that take that make a change log by just grabbing all the commit messages. Commit messages and change logs are, are different things and they've got different audiences and you should write different information for different audiences. Okay. That's an interesting take on that. That you um yeah, so in order to get these uh these commit messages to read well, you've got to like actually think about it when you're committing stuff then. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, wait a second. Think about it? <laughs> yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the idea that writing is a great way to explain things to people, but it's also a great way for you to understand what you are thinking about, is to write about it. And I have often found, you know, I'll make a change, change the code, yeah, change looks good. Okay, uh, I guess I got to write a thing now about what I just did. And in the process of writing the changelog message or you know, a detailed commit message, as some people as some people do, I will realize something about what I've done. And maybe I'll, you know, tweak a name to be better, or I'll think of an edge case that I missed. And I I'm just a huge fan of writing as a way of understanding for yourself. Yes. Yeah. I definitely. But there I, I want to just be realistic that there is there is some differences between uh a commit because I I commit to my own branch because I, I want to get, I want to, it's at the end of my day or something yeah. and I want, or it works now and I want to like have a starting point before I sure. start changing some more stuff. And the mindset of a pull request where I think I actually, I'm ready to push this code into the rest of the code. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. They're, they're different mindsets. So no, I, I understand that. And I've got side projects where I don't keep release notes and I, have very sketchy commit messages um <laughs> but if you are if you are supporting a project seriously and you have an audience that's trying to use your code i really think it's worthwhile putting some time into writing changelog entries that are designed to be read by your users rather than and also commit messages that are designed to be read by other developers on your project and they are different people with different needs uh, yeah that's that might be controversial. Developers don't want to write twice. Maybe it's the same text. Okay, copy and paste it. That's fine. Um, one idea for a future feature of Scriv is to be able to pre-populate the changelog fragment with your commit messages. So at least if you've written a bunch of words that are useful, you'll have them as a starting point, even if I don't just literally make it the next changelog entry. Okay. Um, it doesn't do that yet, but that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you started by talking about this being uh, not opinionated, like black is opinionated, but right. clearly there's some opinions, but 
Well, I personally have opinions about what is the, the value of writing. Yeah. Um, but if you want Markdown, that's fine. If you want RST, that's fine. Um, for instance, that Scrivd does not have an opinion about what categories of changelog entries there are. There's a default of you know fixed, added, changed, deprecated, security, whatever. But you can make up your own categories, and it'll it'll be fine with them. Um, how you want to structure your changelog? Is it a is it a piece within your README already, or is it a separate file? You know, all of those questions are things that can be configured within Scriv. Okay. And, and by the way, if if someone out there wants to use Scriv and they cannot because there is some aspect of their workflow that it cannot do yet, get in touch. I'd be very interested to hear about what that is and to help it adapt. The the other question I have is, or actually, I probably have more, but uh, a question is mm -hmm. when, like, at what point in a project should I use something like this rather than just writing hand handwriting a changelog? Yeah, that's a good question. Def definitely. So right now I use Scriv on itself and on another of my side projects, two of my, maybe two or three. Um, and there it's a little strange because I'm a sole developer. So I yeah. could just edit the changelog that RST. In fact, for my primary side project, coverage.py, I do just edit literally a changes.rst file. Um, and that's because that project predated by a decades Scriv. So I haven't thought about yet whether I want to pull Scriv into that workflow. Um, but if you have multiple developers, um, then this definitely helps avoid that traffic jam at the changelog file. Um, for instance, CPython itself has a tool, um, not Towncryer, a separate tool, a different tool. I forget what it's called. But it has, a, again, the same idea. You make a news entry, they call it, in a directory. And then there's a process that aggregates them together for final publication. Um, okay. and it, just, it just keeps developers out uh, from, it keeps them from conflicting in that one file that they all have to edit all the time. Yeah. So, and I, I'm I'm trying to play with it. I'm considering starting using some sort of extra process just for even sole developer projects because mm -hmm. a workflow that I've often done for little projects is just uh, if I change anything, I'll do another release. Um, right. Because I might not actually work on this project for another month or two or something so and i'll forget right. what i did so go ahead and release it but sometimes there's like it's silly it's like a, a you know it, i i put off things like formatting changes and different things because well that's probably not going to go into a change log um but there's uh but then i have to like hunt down what what i did so i'm actually yep. thinking about trying to add something like this just just for my own sanity's sake just to keep track of things that i don't touch very often right and you know, it's the point you make is an interesting one. I've I've been trying to release more frequently. Um, I you almost came up with a philosophy, which is your change log should only have one entry per release because every time you make a change, it should be a release. And in some ways, yeah, why not release that frequently? I don't know. I just haven't gotten quite into that mindset of releasing quite that often. Um, but I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting closer. And that, well, I've heard other people say they uh, will try to build up some stuff until like um and and just like i don't know there's a regular cadence like every couple of weeks if they've been working on it go ahead and release extra stuff um 
and uh and definitely like if if it's an active project that that makes sense if you've got like multiple changes coming in a day you don't want five releases a day i mean maybe you do i don't know it does seem a little confusing on the consumer side to have it, yes a lot I, so. and one project i haven't looked into it but one project i have noticed because i use it on coverage.py is hypothesis which seems to go the multi-release per day route um and it is a little bit confusing. And for instance, at work, one of the things we have to do is keep our third-party dependencies up to date. And if a library is changing, it, like every time we run make update, that library comes in and we have to think about what changed on it. That's that's taxing on us. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not sure every change deserves a release, but I'm trying to be more frequent about it. <laughs> okay. Well, on my list of people to talk to is uh, somebody about hypothesis. So, you know, maybe... Is that Zach? Um, yeah, yeah. So he was at uh, he was at Pike uh, Pi Bay. So I was on a, on a panel with him. Seems like a nice guy. Yeah. But, um, like, what's up with the multi day re multi releases per day thing? <laughs> uh, but so he's he's in the U.S. now. I I thought he was in he was in Australia for a while. I don't I don't know. I he it's funny. But during the pandemic, we you know I'm running Boston Python, and during the pandemic, we were all virtual, and so we had visitors from all over the world and zach dropped in on one of our uh events that was cool yeah so um i i guess maybe i need to play with all of these to see what what it, what they feel like um okay uh, and and see what it see what it feels like now this so this doesn't depend like you said it doesn't depend on github so i could use i could use this for internal projects as well sure yeah, the only connection, well, it, it connects to Git. It knows, so for instance, when you do a scriv create, it can do the Git add for you. Um, and it will launch an editor the way Git does to edit the fragment. Um, the GitHub release command, of course, is connected to GitHub, um, but, yeah. you know, in a lightweight way. But if I had an internal, as long as it's Git, it should work. Sure. GitLab well, or something. In fact, you don't even have to use the Git features. You could just use it to maintain files for you and do your own Git add or okay. perforce add or whatever it is you'd need to do. <laughs> okay. So uh, other than okay, so we're talking about Scriv, but yep. you're you're kind of a big deal, Ned. Um, Me? Yeah. No, uh, that's too much pressure. <laughs> so so what's what's going on in your life and your Python world and life and everything and um that that's a well big open-ended question um, sorry <laughs> that's okay um you know i've got side projects going one of my other side projects is a thing called dinghy which was designed for me to keep up to date with activity on github i i had to follow too many projects and watch projects and github projects that is not open source projects um and so i wrote this thing called dinghy okay the github uh uh graphql api to to do stuff um i huh. keep mentioning it to people at work who complain they can't keep up with stuff no one else has adopted it but me but that's fine it works well for me so is this an open source thing as well oh yeah okay. oh yeah um and uh i don't I know see it i you've got co cog's been um it goes it, it goes in waves i think if people adopt cog so. Yeah, Cog is Cog is the tool I wrote to inject little bits of computed content into plain text files, basically. Um, and I continue to use it a lot. I just I just wrote some Cog fragments the other day. 
Um, and it seemed, and I, I got actually, I got contacted by a Python core developer, I think just yesterday about COG, um, because people, it's one of these things that grows really slowly over time. Like it's not blowing up, but, and it's been around for 15 years or something, but uh, it's getting we'll see, there. See what we can do about it. Um, no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't need, I, I think we, we, it was mentioned the other day, some last year or something last like it took 15 years to be an overnight success, you know, that kind of project. Yeah. Um, and, a, and supporting coverage, of course. Um, supporting coverage, which is a big thing. 3.11, which is coming out in October, I guess within a few weeks, 3.11 made a number of large changes in the execution of Python in the, in the pursuit of speed, which they've achieved. I think it goes about 25% faster than 3.10. Um, but as a result, there was a bunch of upheaval with esoteric things like coverage that need to track execution. And I, that is now behind us, um, I guess, until maybe 3.12 speed improvements come down the pike. Okay. Um, but yeah, maintaining coverage is, is still a thing. Um, I do a release maybe about once a month, once every two months, but they tend to be small fixes. The problem with coverage is that I get these bug reports about these crazy esoteric things like, oh, it doesn't work with TensorFlow. And I think I can't even spell TensorFlow. I'm not gonna <laughs> be able to debug that. And I try to get attention from TensorFlow people and they don't know what coverage is and. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I guess uh, very popular projects, double-edged sword, I guess for uh, uh, for you. You're not. Are you the? You're not the sole maintainer of coverage, are you? Or are you just? I am. The... I am. Yeah. Basically, I am. There's. Oh. I mean, I get pull requests from people and a lot of help in, in that way. But I, there is not another person who can review the code for for me or with me. Okay. Um, or knows how to release it or anything like that. So yeah. Okay. The sole well, maintainer. I guess thanks then, because sure. we all <laughs> love coverage. Um. So. Um. Well, cool. Uh, any and and you're you're involved with the Boston a little bit involved with the Boston meetup, right? Yeah, so I used to be the like sort of the the main guy who did everything for the Boston Python meetup, um, but I've been really lucky in having other people show up and say they want to do things and then they do them. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for instance, Brian, your book about your second edition of the PyTest book is now a book club that's being run by. One of our, our newest organizer who I've never met because he joined the group during the pandemic and he said he wanted to do a book club. And I said, that sounds hard. I don't know how it's going to work, but he said, I'm going to do it. And he's doing it and it's great. And oh, awesome. Yeah. And uh, it's, vir is it still virtual then? We, yeah, we haven't yet gotten back to, to physical in-person meetups, part of, partly just because everyone's still a little skittish, um, but also because even in, before times, it was hard for us to find hosts that could host us because we would tend to get 80 to 100 people. Yeah. And so now we have to find hosts that are both large enough and don't mind the risk of hosting in-person events. And right now we're entering back into the cold season, which tends to give a little bump to things, but everyone's vaccinated, so maybe it won't be a problem. So I don't know. Something will probably happen pretty soon. But I kind of... I mean, there's there's definitely need for that for people to actually get to, get together and and see each other in person, especially if they don't have colleagues that they interact with much. I know. I have a feeling the first the first back to person in person event we do, everyone's going to be one really excited, and two will think we really should have done this a year ago. Okay. 
that would be my guess. But there's probably a non-zero portion of the population that really wants them to stay remote so that they can, uh, you know, well, attend well, without commuting. Yes, absolutely. In fact, Glenn, who is is running the, your book club, the book club for your book, I should say, uh, lives, I don't know, an hour or two north of Boston. Yeah. And so feels an affinity to a Boston meetup, but probably wouldn't attend in person. It would be difficult for him. Um, we're doing weekly office hours now, and one of our regular attendees of the office hour, I think, lives in Mexico. Nice. And, you know, why not, right? Why not? So, yeah. So, um, I mean, during the pandemic, I was wondering, what does the word Boston mean in Boston Python Meetup anymore? Uh, but I don't know. You're not going to have a worldwide meetup. Right. So, well, okay, yeah, you, you got to at least pick a time zone. Yeah. But, yeah. You have to at least pick a time zone. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, cool. Well, thanks for your time today. And thanks for sure. uh, describing this to me. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Scriv is another of these projects that started very slowly. In fact, I was, I was kind of astonished to realize as I was going back through the history that I started this two and a half years ago. Um, and it, it, right now, as far as I know, it's only being used by three of my side projects. But I think other people are using it because I'm getting feedback. But it's not. It has not hit the big time yet. Maybe it never will. That's fine. Um, yeah. It's been fun to work on. Well, I, I just I have a couple of stupid things that I I kick around my that are useful for myself. Um, exactly. And then, and then, but then sometimes some of them start getting used by other people. And then, and then I start kind of caring about not being a dork and just changing things <laughs> willy nilly. Um, yeah, it's tricky. So. <laughs> but but at the same time, I still want the think i should have the freedom to do that i mean it's my project right but it's right. The same thing. yeah i think it, in, in, when it comes to that i think the important thing is to be clear about it like you could put into the top of your readme uh feel free to use this uh but i don't care i'm gonna <laughs> do what i want to do um <laughs> may change at any moment yeah so. or like i might i could have put at the top of scriv i'm using this now i don't know if anyone else is if you are please let me know so that i can start to wonder whether i need to be careful with it or not mm. Um, you know, we tend to get these very formulaic readmes that try to present everything as if they're, you know, the next thing that's going to change the world. But like you said, like we're just one dude sitting in our room hacking on some code because it was interesting for a little while. Why can't we be transparent about that in our readmes? And okay, um, so you your your code doesn't um, uh, enforce any versioning or anything. Uh, Script doesn't. No. Okay. Are are you a semantic version kind of person, or do you? I am. Yeah, okay. I try to be. I mean, it's a little tricky because semantic versioning is based on the idea that there is a well-defined interface, and you need to know whether you have changed it or not. And often, that is very difficult to determine. Well, um, with Python, you can reach into anything, so the entire code base is an interface. Well, yes. Well, there's that. Um, for instance, I mean, I've had that problem with coverage.py, and I try to be strict about it. Like, I documented a bunch of stuff. I'm prom making promises about that stuff, and if it's not documented, I, you're you're on your own. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna bend over backwards to deal with that. Um, but you know, things like, I mean, here's the example I've used before: pylint, right? Which which issues violations for your code. If the set of violations changes, is that a breaking change for pylint? Because their interface is we read your code and out comes a set of violations. I don't yeah. know that anyone would think it is, but 
in a way that's their interface. So, and like uh, if they add a new one, if they add a, a new one or, or if something tweaks and so they set the, the times it appears changes. Yeah. Is that an interface? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't well, know. so I, I was, um, so that like, you know, there's so many of these corner cases with semantic versioning. So I've, 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 uh, talked to somebody about the, the calendar ver Calver. Calver. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Just, uh, just bump, bump, like the, the other digits are the same, but the top yep. one, you bump it every year. Well, and that's uh, what PIP does, right? PIP is, is Calver yeah. calendar versioning. Yeah. So, um, and I was thinking like to force people to read, read the change log, um, just do Randver. Just a random number generator. Randver, um, okay. That that picks your version for you. But is it at least going to be monotonically increasing, or you're going to have no, like version no, three just, after version four? Sure, it can just be any version. It just um, okay. so you have you have to pin it. It can't be a less than or equal or right. anything okay. like wow. that. <laughs> that would be mean. I mean, you would get some hate mail, I think, if you really did that. But, or okay. you guarantee you not to have any users of your of your tool. Okay, well, the the real Randver probably isn't a random number generator, but just it's it looks like semantic versioning, and they keep growing further, but you don't know if it's going to break between yes. major versions or not. Yes. Well, remember Don, Donald Knuth when he produced his tech uh, text formatting system used versions where the version number was pi, and he would add a new digit to the end of pi. <laughs> I didn't remember. I don't know that. Yes. Yeah, so great. That, because, and and that was because he really had this feeling like I am I am asymptotically approaching this thing being literally done. Like it's not just going to grow forever. It is nearing perfection. So we'll just add one more. And URLib three, I think, did the same thing, right? Point nine 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 was a version of theirs. <laughs> so there's plenty of innovation to be had in the versioning game. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Well, I could probably BS with you a whole bunch, and if I wanted to, I probably should show up at the Buy Stuff Boston meetups more. So, well, yeah, yeah sure, cool. Uh, well, thanks for your time, and okay. uh, catch up with you later. Okay, bye. All right, bye. Thanks, Ned, for maintaining some awesome tools for the Python community and for talking with me about them. Listen to episode 200 if you'd like to find more about keeping a changelog. And in, stick around for the next episode, episode 202, where we'll discuss a similar tool called Town Crier. Thank you, Patreon supporters, for your awesome continued support for the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. To find out when episodes are released, head to testingcode.com slash subscribe. There you'll find the feed that you can add to your podcast player so you can get all the new episodes and an email notifier that you can sign up for if you want to get emailed when a new episode comes out and also a link to Patreon. So not only Patreon supporters get an, get announcements for when the episodes come out, but they also help keep the show going. You can also follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at Brian Aachen at fostodon.org. I'll also announce new episodes there. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. 